0: Well, let's get right to the issue at hand, uh, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when I was a young man, my first year of seminary, I had a friend uh, who was Jewish, and he invited me to his mother's marriage. She was getting Uh, remarried. And actually, it wasn't to the wedding. It was to the reception I was invited. Basically, he said this, there's a party, lots of food, come. So I went. And um, he was Jewish. She was Jewish. And she was marrying a man who I found out was going to be a Methodist pastor. Now I had no tact back then, unlike the polished product that you see today. Okay, um, but um, I went up to him. This was at at their house, and I said, "Hey, I have a question for you. Um, I know that the lady you're marrying is Jewish. She doesn't believe in Jesus, and you believe in Jesus. How's that going to work?" All right, I kind of said it like that. And you know what he said? He said, oh, the cross is just a symbol. Why should I let symbols divide us? Yeah. That was my first exposure to uh, what you would call liberal Christianity. Now, when I say liberal, I'm not talking about politics here. I'm talking about liberal Christianity. In fact, if you Google that term, Liberal Protestant Christianity. I got this off of that highly reliable source, Wikipedia. Um, It says this Liberal Protestantism developed in the 19th century out of a need to adapt Christianity to a modern intellectual context. What does that mean? Well, in the 1800s, a bunch of theologians said, Hey, um, we've got science. We're developing uh, the scientific method. We've got philosophy. We live in a modern world. Um, Nobody buys the miracles in the Bible anymore. So let's extract the ethics of Christianity, the ethics and the morals of the Bible, from the miracles of the Bible, because we don't really buy them anyways. We'll, We'll look at them as myths but we'll, we'll preach the ethics and the morals. So the cross, whether Jesus was really crucified or not, doesn't matter, they would say, but it's a, it's a symbol of sacrifice. That's what we'll retain. And his resurrection from the dead, whether it happened or not, that doesn't really matter, but it's a symbol of hope of new beginnings, of of new life. Some of you were raised in in liberal churches, and and, uh, you go, yeah, we never really heard about uh, the miracles of Jesus or his death and resurrection as being that important. What was important was the latest political or ethical issue, okay? That's because they abandoned the historicity of the scriptures. They didn't buy the miracles. Now, some of the the gentlemen in the church and I, we've been getting together watching a a documentary uh, called The American Gospel. And um, really what it is, is it's comparing and contrasting um, Bible-believing theologians and pastors with what you call progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity really is just liberal Christianity, but with a cooler look, okay? And uh, one of the ladies who is being interviewed is a a woman named Alyssa Childers, and um, she was raised in a Bible-believing family, and then she started attending a church. She didn't know it, but the pastor was progressive, And she started attending a Bible study where he basically started deconstructing everything she had ever believed, and she went into a crisis of faith. And she began to realize that most of the people in her church didn't really believe in what the scriptures taught. And in her book, she has a book, um, she's in a choir practice one night, and one of the ladies next to her whispers this to her. She goes, it's funny that we're all singing these songs and none of us have any idea what we believe. Okay, on the worship team, rehearsing, but we don't really know if we believe this stuff or not. But, you know, that Jesus, whether he lived or not, said, love one another. That's what we're here for whether he walked on water, fed the multitudes, rose from the dead, that doesn't really matter. Okay? Now, um, there were those 2,000 years ago in the Corinthian church. So in, in Greece, there's Corinth. And the Apostle Paul planted a church in Corinth. And there crept into this Corinthian church some false teaching. And uh, some of the teaching went like this. There's no future resurrection from the dead. In other words, when you die, you die. That's it. So Paul writes them and says, no, wait a minute. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Jesus rose from the dead. And here's what he says in chapter 15. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who've died, your fellow believers who've died, they've perished. And then he says this, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You know what he's saying? Christ didn't rise from the dead, what are you doing wasting your time in church on a Sunday afternoon? There are football games you should be watching. There are bars you should be at. In fact, later on, he says this, if the dead are not raised, if there's no resurrection of the dead, and if Christ isn't raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The Bible isn't a book about just Uh, be a goody two-shoes, the Bible comes right out and says if, if there's no future resurrection of the dead, then the smartest way to live is like a pagan. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. You see progressive liberal Christianity that says, hey, whether Jesus died and rose doesn't matter. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that it all hinges on Jesus' death and resurrection. If he didn't die and rise, then there's no message, there's no hope. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we will die. Now, here's the question. How do we know he really died and rose from the dead? So here's, here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to give you four reasons why you can believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Okay? Four reasons. Number one, they all, and they all begin with the same letter, E. Okay? You never know what the letter's going to be from week to week. Today it's E, sponsored by the letter E today. All right. Here, here's the first reason to consider. The story of Christ's death and resurrection, as reported in the Gospels, is, is told as embedded in real history. Okay? Okay. Um, what, what, what do I mean by that? Well, the story is told naming real names of real governors and kings and real locations that if this was not true could be checked out and would have been easily discredited. So an example I like to give, let's say somebody today wanted to make up a story and pass it off as real history. So let's say they make up a story about a popular preacher who is in Washington, D.C., the week of the presidential inauguration. And he is murdered. He is put to death by a conspiracy of people, including the president, you can name whichever one you want, um, members of the Senate, members of the Supreme Court, other members of the clergy are involved, probably Piper, um, he, was, he was killed publicly, executed publicly for everybody to see, Okay, buried in Arlington National Cemetery, and a battalion of Marines guarded the tomb. And then in this story, with all these names and locations, the story goes that the tomb was found empty, dug up three days later, Nobody was in the tomb, and there are a bunch of witnesses who are willing to swear and even die for the fact that they saw this guy alive, okay? Now, if it were a made-up story, and I were trying to sneak that into history, it would be too easily discredited because I made the mistake of naming Presidents and Supreme Court judges and locations. Um, if if it were made up, and I started telling that story, it would be discredited. Okay. Now here's what the New Testament teaches: that Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, the capital city right of Israel, during Passover. It wasn't on some gloomy. Tuesday, that doesn't matter. It was on the the biggest day of the year. He was placed on trial before the high priest. What was his name? It was Caiaphas. And his father-in-law, who really was the puppet master behind everything, his name was Annas. So this this is embedded in a real trial with real people in real history. He stood trial before the Sanhedrin, like the Supreme Court, basically. He was questioned by the king, King Herod. He was sentenced to be crucified by the governor, Governor Pontius Pilate. A prisoner, what was his name? Barabbas was exchanged for Jesus, and Barabbas was let free, was let go. As Jesus is carrying his cross, he stumbles... And the Roman soldiers make another man carry his cross. What was his name? Simon. Where was he from? Cyrene. Jesus died on the cross and he was buried. Well, do we know where he was buried? Yes. In the tomb of a man from Arimathea named Joseph. And by the way, Joseph of Arimathea was on the this, this Sanhedrin. He was one of the Sanhedrin members. That's like bringing in a judge from the Supreme Court. The tomb was sealed with a Roman seal, guarded by soldiers, and was empty three days later. Now, the point is, this was preached very early on. And if it was made up, it would have been laughed off. As ridiculous because it's too firmly embedded. You don't bring King Herod and Pontius Pilate and name the location if you expect this, this myth, this made-up story, to survive. Now, let me show you how early this historical story uh, was, was told. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Now, he's writing about 50... A.D. Okay, Uh, And he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he says this, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. So he's reminding them in 50 AD, that he has already preached what he's about to recite, probably in the later 40s. Okay? But now, look what he says For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. So I'm reminding you of what I already preached to you, and what I preached to you, I received it earlier. Now, when did Paul receive the gospel? Well, Jesus was crucified in 33 A.D. Jesus himself converted him, appeared to him on the road to Damascus in about 35 A.D. Three years later, Paul went to Jerusalem and talked with Peter. Now, we don't know if Paul, the the gospel that he received, the words that he's about to recall, uh, were received from Jesus on the road to Damascus, or if he's talking about when he went to Jerusalem, that would have been five years after Jesus was crucified. But here's what's going on. Paul is going to recite to the Corinthians What he had already verbally taught them, and what he had received either two or five years after Christ rose from the dead. So this was preached very early on. Now, what did did he say? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to, so now he's going to start naming names, to Cephas. That's another name for Peter. He appeared to Peter, the apostle. Then to the 12. So he appeared to the 12 apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. We'll come back to that later. But what I want you to see is he's preaching about a a real event in real history with real witnesses while they're still alive. Okay? Okay though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. James was running the church in Jerusalem. Okay, Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What's the point? This gospel that Paul preached, which is embedded in real history, was spread during the lifetime of people who were there, who could have affirmed it or discredited it. So when progressive Christians say, well, it's just a myth that was made up. Wait a minute. It, was, it started to be preached in the first century, very early on, as real history. How did it slip into history when the people who could have discredited it were right there? So point number one is embedded. Remember that word, embedded in history. Let me give you a second argument for why we can believe that this is true. And that is, there was an empty tomb. There was an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Now, there's no doubt that there was a real person by the name of Jesus Of Nazareth, who lived in the first century. Okay. Other world religions reject Jesus as God, but they don't deny that he existed. Okay. Muslims uh, would say he's a prophet, but he's not God. Jewish people would say he was a false Messiah, but none of them say he never existed. Now, the biblical accounts say He was the Messiah, he was God, the Son of God, and he was crucified and buried, and three days later, the stone in front of the tomb was rolled away, and there was no body in the tomb, okay? Now, historically, there have been two ways that people have tried to explain away the empty tomb. Um, First of all, there is the stolen body theory, right? The stolen body theory simply says this. Somebody stole the body, right? Now, who are the candidates? Well, the most likely candidates would be the disciples, right? But here's why that's ridiculous. Remember the night Jesus was arrested, Peter, brave Peter, denies that he even knows Jesus three times. And while we get down on Peter, all the other apostles, when Jesus was arrested, fled. They were cowards. Now, are we to really believe that this bunch of cowards flee? They flee. The next day, from a long distance, they see Jesus brutally mangled on a cross, they get together that night and they go, hey, I have an idea. Let's risk our lives, sneak past the guards, overpower the guards, roll the stone away, steal the body, tell people that he rose from the dead, and build a religion based on truth and righteousness and honesty. Let's do it. Okay, I think it takes more faith to believe that than to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So the stolen body theory, let's rule out the disciples, the apostles. The, the only other option would be the Romans or the Jews. Right? Now the Jewish authorities, they were the, the last ones who would want people to believe Jesus rose from the dead. So if they stole the body, you know what they would do? They'd bring it out and say, here's your, here's your Messiah. They couldn't do that. The Romans, on the other hand, they just wanted one thing, peace. No rebellion, no no movement of people uh, claiming to follow a Messiah. So if they had the body, they would bring it out and say, stop your crazy rebellion. So the stolen body theory, when you really look at it, makes no sense. Then there's the, uh, the swoon theory. The swoon theory is the idea that Jesus was crucified, they thought he was dead, and they wrapped him up in the the burial cloths, put him in the tomb, and then the cold air of the tomb revived him, and he came out alive. Well, um, I will spare you all the details of of, uh, the, the flogging that you go through and the nails and the agony uh, that a person goes through. But um, let's look at how you know somebody has died on the cross. Okay? It's, it's obvious whether somebody on the cross is alive or not, because to breathe, you actually have to push up on the nails of your feet to, to exhale to so there's this agonizing thing of, of not only hanging, but having to, to wreathe up and down to get your next breath of air. A lot of them died uh, by suffocation because it was just too hard to keep doing that. Now, here's the account in John's Gospel of what happens when it's time to check, or is Jesus still alive? It says, now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Now, why would breaking the legs uh, have anything to do with this? Well, simple, break the legs, you can't push up anymore, You die of suffocation within minutes, okay? 32, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. They were still wreathing up and down on the cross. Break, break. What about Jesus? But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. How did they know that he was dead? He wasn't wreathing. But just to make sure... Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. What was that? That was, uh, he's not moving, he's dead, but just to make sure, boom, to the heart. And water and blood come flowing out. These soldiers were professional executioners. They knew that if somebody uh, was crucified, they could tell whether he was alive or dead. This was their job. This was their business. If a prisoner escaped, they would be uh, executed themselves. That's quite an incentive to make sure that their prisoners die. Okay? But the theory is they, they missed it. And then Joseph of Arimathea takes the body down, and it's still alive, still warm, still breathing, but he thinks Jesus is dead, and he wraps him up in this mummy thing, puts him in the tomb, and then uh, Jesus wakes up, bursts through the burial clothes, throws the rock away, overpowers the soldiers, and shows up in front of the apostles that day as the king of, of kings and lord of lords. There's a a skeptic whose name is David Strauss. He was an opponent of Christianity. He said this, It's impossible that a being who had stolen half-dead out of the sepulcher, the tomb, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening, could have given the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death and the grave the Prince of Life, an impression that would lay at the bottom of their future ministry. Even a skeptic looks at these details. He goes, now, if somebody survived crucifixion, they wouldn't show up three days later as victorious over, uh, over death. Okay, So there's, the, uh, there's an empty tomb. The stolen body theory doesn't make any sense. The swoon theory doesn't make any sense. And what's interesting is the church begins in Jerusalem. 3,000 people believe. One of the strongest arguments for why it's true is, is this. Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, and he says, you know, David's tomb is over there, but Jesus isn't in the in his tomb. They could have gone and checked and said, yeah, he is. He's... But nobody could explain the empty tomb. All right. Let's let's move on to the third argument: eyewitnesses. Okay, now in our our text that we read this morning, we read about women who had followed Jesus from Galilee being witnesses, and in uh, 23, 55, it says, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Now, notice Luke has these women witnessing the tomb in which he was buried. Why? Because he probably knew 2,000 years later, somebody would say, oh, they just got the tomb wrong. Right? These poor women, they didn't know which tomb to go. No. They were so devoted to Jesus that when his dead body is put in the tomb, they were there. They saw Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Now, next day's a Sabbath. They can't do anything. But then the following day, it's a Sunday, They go to the tomb, and they see the stone rolled away, and it's empty. Now, somebody's going to say, well, who are these witnesses? You can't have uh, imaginary witnesses. So Luke says, let me tell you who they were. It was Mary Magdalene, Mary from Magdalia. And Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Not, not Mary, the mother of Jesus, but the another James, okay? And the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Now, here's something significant. Women were not respected. And they could not even give testimony in a court of law. If this is a made-up story... Why in the world would you have the witnesses be women? Why not make up, I don't know, name some important person? Why name the women? Well, I think there's two things going on. Number one, the Scriptures are elevating the status of women. right? And two, it's just reporting it because that's how it happened. If it's a myth have it be somebody else. But the naming of women is an important factor in the truthfulness, the historicity uh, that this is true. So first thing I want you to observe about the witnesses is the first witnesses are women. Second thing I want you to observe is the witnesses, many of them, when, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, are still alive. He's one of the witnesses. He's alive. The apostles are witnesses. They're alive. And then if you look at uh, verse 6, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. You know what Paul's doing? He's saying, if you don't believe me, there are 500 people who witnessed this. They're still alive. Go ask them. Okay? So there's women witnesses. Witnesses. There are living witnesses that the gospel story appeals to. Right? And then the, the last thing about the witnesses is many of them went on to be martyred. They're martyred witnesses. Um, it's interesting if you, if you Google, how did the apostles die? Paul, his head was chopped off for his belief in Christ in Rome by Nero. Peter was crucified, and legend tells us, upside down. He didn't want to die the way Jesus died, so they crucified him upside down. Nero killed both Peter and Paul. Okay, James, he's the only apostle we read about who is martyred uh, that we read about in the Bible. We read about him in Acts 12. Herod kills him by the sword. Andrew, now I've got some, some uh, geographical locations. Andrew... We are told, went as far as Russia as a missionary, and he was crucified. Thomas made it to India. He was pierced through with the spears of four soldiers. Philip went to North Africa and Asia Minor. He was now we don't know exactly how, but he was he was martyred. Okay. Matthew, possibly stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew everybody's favorite apostle, I don't know, Um, went to India, Armenia, Ethiopia, and Arabia, and there are different accounts of how he was martyred, but he was martyred. Um, James, different James than the first James who was killed. Um, Josephus, a Jewish historian, non-believer, reported that he was stoned to death and clubbed to death. Uh, I believe this James is the brother of Jesus was in charge of the Jerusalem church. Simon the Zealot went as far as Persia, and he was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias was burned to death, and John, um, he died of natural causes, but there's a legend that says um, he escaped unhurt after being cast into a vat of boiling oil in Rome. I'd rather just have my head chopped off, okay? But here's, here's the the issue with these people who are martyred. The, the argument is not, well, they were martyred, therefore Christianity is true. If that's the argument, then the 9-11 terrorists, their religion must be true, because they, they died for their faith. That's not the argument. The argument is something changed these guys from being trembling cowards to being martyrs who were willing to die i'm going to say it was seeing jesus alive okay one last thing and we'll be done the last argument is this if this all all, the, all this took place and there was this unique historical event where this guy named Jesus from Nazareth was crucified and then put into a tomb, and then he, he was seen alive. Um, if, that's, if all were going on are the historical uh, circumstances surrounding his death and resurrection, it'd be one thing. But what if hundreds of years earlier, written in the Old Testament, His death and resurrection was written about. Okay? Which is what Isaiah 53 is about. Isaiah 53, written 700 years before the birth of Christ. Talks about a servant of God who would come. And it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him, was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So uh, this predicts a servant of God coming to die in our place, to pay for our sins. Uh, I won't read all of it, but if you get down to verse 10, it says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, God, has put him, this servant, to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt But now, look, look at this. He shall see his offspring. This dead servant will see his offspring, meaning his followers. He shall prolong his days. He's going to come back from the dead. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So you've got the story of his death and resurrection embedded in history, right? It's it's not just a a myth made up. Secondly, uh, there's an empty tomb that can't be explained. Thirdly, there are eyewitnesses who were willing to give their life. And fourthly, this was all explained hundreds of years beforehand. So Here's the the final takeaway. Maybe let's say you're sitting here this morning or this afternoon or whatever it is, okay? Um, And you go, yeah, I'm kind of interested in Christianity, but I'm not so sure it's anything more than a myth. And I kind of went through a phase of that in my own life, and then I heard somebody present facts very similar to this. This took place 30 years ago. And I walked away going, wow. So you don't have to throw your brain away to become a Christian. These these objections have been raised throughout uh, the history of Christianity, and they've been met. I just want to know, is this a myth that I'm placing my faith in? Or is there some confidence that I can have that it really happened? Yes, it really happened. Now, Uh, if that's a barrier, if that's a, uh, a stumbling stone, hopefully we can remove that. And now here's what you need to do. You need to realize, you need to ask, why did he come? Why did he die? He died because we're sinners. And we as sinners cannot go before a holy God. We will be sent away for eternity because of our sin, unless somebody pays for our sin. And that's what he did on the cross. He died to pay for our sin on the cross. Now, here's the really, really good news. You get what he did for you by believing in him. Not by believing in him plus a whole long list of of hoops you have to jump through. The moment you trust in him... He takes your sins upon himself. He gives you his perfect record. And that's why you can be forgiven right now by trusting in him as your risen Lord and Savior. I'm going to pray. And if we could have the worship team come on up. Jesus, thank you that you, God of all creation, became a man. Thank you that you willingly went to that cross to pay for our sin. Thank you that you, you call us to yourself. You, you offer salvation as a free gift. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who uh, who may have been confused or, or may just need to be challenged and encouraged to place their trust in you, that you, Holy Spirit, would do that work in their heart. Lord, there are others who have been following you for a long time, but our faith gets challenged and we get confused. And it's good, Lord, to, to be reminded that we can stand on the solid rock of your death and resurrection. So, Lord, we, we want to close this, this afternoon by worshiping you, our risen Savior in Lord. We pray it in your name. Amen.